Just a quick note, the podcast is in mono as always. Unfortunately, we're talking about some very heavily stereo productions this time. Sorry we cannot play those selections in their full stereo glory. We encourage you to look them up on Spotify or other sources. Sorry about that. Jazz. Well, you should be prepared, right? Because this is the kind of the Mike show, right? You you picked out all these selections. Oh man, don't call it that. That makes it sound like I know what I'm doing. Hang on, let me hit record. The Mike show. Please don't call it the Mike show. That's a terrible. I just it was just some stuff, dude. Stuff that came up stuff. with actually the title of Jazz Bastard Podcast One Ninety Seven will be "Subtle Is as Subtle Does." As we look at some <laughs> rather uh, aggressive records, I'm I'm Pat. I'm Mike. And uh, today, uh, Mike's picked out some kind of big band oriented recordings from mostly you know the kind of. I don't know if first wave's quite correct, but the heart of the big band era. Yeah. And then there's one exception here, but even the Max Roach versus Buddy Rich album, Rich versus Roach, uh, certainly, uh, though Max Roach was more of a bebop drummer, Buddy Rich got a start in big band. So uh, do you want to introduce the other selections along with uh, Rich versus Roach? Yeah, sure. So um, I, th- I forget what the impetus for this was, but oh, I think a main impetus was I had picked up this Harry James compilation disc, the best of Harry James. Well, and is, I've is always it Trumpet looked, Blues? I mean, the name it's of it Trumpet is Trumpet Blues. Okay, okay, yeah, okay. It's, yeah, but it's okay. but it is the that's Trumpet Blues, the best of Harry. Yeah, James. Yeah, but, okay. Yeah, and I've you know I've always had a soft spot for him because. Um, He's, you know, like Maynard Ferguson before Maynard Ferguson, you know, and and, <laughs> and uh, he's he's an interesting guy. I've been I've been reading his biography more on that later. Um, so I picked up that disc and I've just always liked Harry James. I for uh, I have uh, a couple of discs by him. I have his um, recordings with Frank Sinatra, which are he he's uh, rightly regarded as essentially having discovered Sinatra. Um, Sinatra had been, you know, making a little bit of noise, but it's Harry James who saw him. He was he was coached to. Someone told him to go see him, and he heard him, and he's like, he hired him on the spot. He didn't stay with James long. Um, he actually got out of his contract early, but being with James made him famous. So that's kind of why people know Harry James. But he's actually a pretty good trumpet player. We'll talk about him. And then uh, I came across uh, something else, and uh, I wanted to pair it with the Harry James, since there was some overlap in personnel and stuff, and then it just seemed like we had a theme. So, uh, yeah, I got a hold of this Rich versus Roach uh, date, which is one of those um, uh, contest-blowing dates. You know, there's plenty of examples of these with uh, tenor men, you know. Um, so they thought this would be a fun day to have Buddy Rich... The, the king of the big band drummers against Max Roach, the king of the bebop drummers. The cover shows them sort of holding their sticks and cymbals as if they are weapons that they're about to be dueling with one another with. <laughs> By all accounts, this actually turned out to be a pretty congenial date. They, they got along just fine, which respected Roach enormously and vice versa. They're very different drummers. Which you, can, you don't need the liner notes on this CD to tell you who's in which channel. Um, it's pretty clear 
uh, on listening who's in what channel. But anyway, the innovation here, of course, is that they just took their quintets and um, they play their quintets against one another. And there's some interesting personnel choices here. Um, there's some straight-up percussion dueling, um, but it's more like my quintet versus your quintet, and we'll take you know we'll take turns playing stuff, which is kind of an interesting approach. And that fits well with something you picked out, which is the Duke Ellington. Um, I guess the official title is first time. You have to say it that way yep. because there's an exclamation point. First time. First time. The count meets the Duke which is uh, Basie and Ellington's bands, more or less in, in their late primes, uh, together. So it's like, you know, 30 musicians in a room, and you've got a lot of really, really fine players playing a lot of basically Billy Strayhorn and Duke Ellington arrangements, even if they're doing arrangements of the Basie stuff. So that's kind of fun to hear the, those two bands playing together. So that was your suggestion. So we're listening to that. And then finally, um, I got a hold of from the library the uh, complete Columbia recordings of Woody Herman and his orchestra and woodchoppers. <laughs> 1945 to 1947. Seven, count them, seven CDs on Mosaic. We're just going to talk about one of them, uh, number seven, that's the one which features a very young Stan Getz, a very young Zoot Sims, Al Cohn's doing a whole bunch of the arrangements. Um, and who's the Barry? Serge Chaloff? Yeah, right? absolutely. Yeah. yeah, The fourth so, brother. Sort of the fourth brother, the sort of famous four brothers. And I believe this is the second set of four brothers or whatever. Well, I mean, it's the second herd. I think they herd. were the four brothers, but Woody named his band's numbered his bands as various herds. And I think this was the, I believe it was a second herd. I'm not a Woodyologist, but right. I think that's and, right. Um, yeah. And I, I've been doing read, some reading on him and he's just, he's dead fascinating to Woody Herman is uh, probably the best liked of all the big band leaders. Like, you know, you, you just won't find members of his bands to say shit about him. Whereas everyone hated Benny Goodman. And, well, yeah. <laughs> and, and half of Duke's band hated him at one time or another. You know, different people are more taskmasters right. than others. But you can't find anyone to say anything bad about Woody Herman, who was a uxorious, happy, congenial, sweet guy who just ran a band for fucking ever and got along with everyone, surprisingly. So that's kind of rare, I think. Was it, anyway, wasn't it we'll that Stan Getz said, Woody Hurt, you can't even play this shit right. You're no good. And he's like, yeah, I know. That's why I hired you, you idiot. Because <laughs> <Yeah>. the <laughs> Herman was, you know, of the of the clarinet band leaders, he was no Artie Shaw or Benny Goodman of technique. No. But no. anyway, so he's a, I, I he's thought, a, yeah. He's a, he's a decent vocalist. He's not an arranger. He's He yeah. doesn't do the arrangements. He's he's a sweet guy who runs a good band. Um, he didn't over rehearse his guys. He didn't drive them into the ground. You know, he was, he was a sweet fellow, reasonable player and a decent singer, not a bad singer. He does a lot of the vocals and you know, he's not bad. He's not, he's not great. He just, he's just, he's like, he's like a B student. He's everything is just, he's not great. He's fine. (laughs) Yeah. He's just fine. And he had the ability to spot phenomenal talent. And also we'll say more about this. He was not someone who was uh, caught in amber. He actually was willing to try the new music, and that includes bebop and fusion. And you just can't imagine other big band guys 
going, hey, let's try that bebop. Hey, let's try that fusion. But Woody Herman did. Let's try that bourbon. That, that they might say. So do you want to start with Harry? Uh, Harry James? Yeah, sure. We can talk about Harry. That sounds good to me. Something about Harry? Did you, did you, um, I have a whole bunch of stories to tell about Harry James. First of all, did you like this or was this just too loud, too obnoxious, too big? Yeah, right. Well, let's, let's, so this is, uh, the album is Trumpet Blues. It comes out in 1999 on Capitol Jazz, but really it's a collection of recordings made for the Capitol label between 55 and 58. Right. So it's it's not his whole career. It's it's focusing on that period of time when Capitol especially got the old big bands from the 30s and 40s together and said we've got a we've got fancier studios, we've got stereo sound in some cases, we've got high fidelity. Let's record these ensembles in the best available sound in a way they could not be recorded at their peaks. You know, back in the 78 era, which really is not over by the time the big bands more or less die in the mid-40s. So this, the occasion of it was the biography of Harry James, which it sounds like you've read, I actually downloaded and read, called Trumpet Blues. Surprisingly printed by Oxford, though... Uh, oh, yeah. What a, but yeah. What a bad book. <laughs> yeah, he did a lot of research. He did, interviewed a lot of people. I'm impressed with the primary uh, research he did. The, the author, uh, what's his name? Uh, it's Peter uh, Peter Levinson. Peter Levinson, Levinson, yeah. The problem with the book is Peter Levinson, he is not a musicologist. He's not an academic. He's not a historian. Go ahead, class. Go ahead, Pat. Tell class. Tell the class what Peter Levinson did for a living. Well, kind of. He was a music promo guy. I, I don't he's know. An I mean, he's, he's an agent. He's an agent. Right. Yeah. He's not. He's not real. So it's. Yeah, and he was a big Harry James fan, as were apparently 99% of the female population. Yes, um, yes. <laughs> he, he, so Levinson is just, he, he is, he's not strong on the music at all. He is very strong on, like, dates, you know, on what this promoter said to that promoter and, you know, when they went to this club and who was there. He's really good on the nuts and bolts, and he is just not good on, like, evaluating the music or saying anything even remotely synthetic about like culture and times, you know, it's like, it's like, it's, it reads like a music promoter's version of history. It's like the first time I met Harry James was backstage with blah, blah, blah. And right, I remember yeah. the time Frank Sinatra and he had a dick measuring contest or whatever. You know? I mean, it's just, <laughs> it's, it's that kind of anecdotal history. Oh yeah. You know, the difficulty with, and I always felt like big band music is its own thing. I, I tend to think of it, even though there's a lot of jazz played in big bands, and 
you know, it's almost a separate thing from jazz. Right. And part of the thing with big bands is, is that when they were popular, they're kind of like baseball teams and that if you're into them, you knew all the personnel and so-and-so traded so-and-so to so-and-so and he got his trombonist and the clarinetist went over here. And then when you're at the distance of 50 or 60 years from this era and they're dropping all these names, all but the most well-known, even for a jazz aficionado, someone who's read a hell of a lot. You know, I've got a bookcase of books about jazz that I've read. I've, it's just like, who the hell are these people and why do I care? that so-and-so right. stopped playing clarinet, you know, whatever it was, trumpet right. or third trumpet or, you know. So there's just, yeah, facts tend to get in the way of analysis and narrative in the book. He's He's got a couple of basic hypotheses. He doesn't he doesn't write well, but, but one is obviously that, that James was crucified to a degree that, you know, even reading reviews on Amazon of his music still seems to sting, still seems to be the main discourse about him for playing schmaltzy ballads. Right. right. You know, he right. and wide vibrato and giving up jazz to, to make money because his band was dying after he left Goodman. It just he just couldn't make a living at it. Right. And, and so his argument is James is a great trumpet player. Many other trumpet players acknowledge this. Also, James was interested in other trumpet players. He was worried about Miles Davis during Miles's seclusion, super coke period, you know, et cetera. He you know, that that's kind of. One thing he runs on about, and then another one is that basically James was emotionally uh, retarded in a sense. He never fully became an adult, and what this reflected was you know, obsession with sports and then just obsession with just sleeping with anyone who would sleep right. with him. Just, right. and, you know, even ex-wives would comment, you know, some of them were beautiful, some of them were ugly, some of them were fat, some of them were skinny. But just night after night after night after night after night, he'd bed a new groupie. He just, just right compulsively to a degree that people who knew him weren't sure he was even enjoying it, but he just did it again yeah. and again and again. And of course the big deal was he was married to Betty Grable. How could right. this possibly be the case? The great movie. Who's also one of the, one of the nicest of the, of the movie yeah, stars. Apparently of that so, yeah. Like a real sweetheart, you know, would cook for the band. Like, you know, the band would come over and she'd cook. You know, she comes off. Yes. Very <laughs> unpretentious, very sweet. Right. And you know, really his first wife seems to have been a nice human being. So, there's a lot of that. There's not a lot about him as a musician. You know, I, no. as I listen to the band, it's, it is this maybe a little hard and that may be partially capital, which, you know, has pretty good sound in the fifties, but some of it may be, you know, striving for stereo excitement, or I'm not sure if all these are stereo recordings. Please don't, I don't have the liner, so I don't really know who the personnel is or anything. But I think the other thing is I notice at least some of his tracks I feel like, you know, he's an amazing trumpet player. Let's get that out. I mean, he can, he, there's no question the guy can play trumpet. Apparently he was, he was a circus child and he was trained by his yeah, father. Raised, he was literally raised in the circus and by the age of 10 was leading the band when his dad was away. <laughs> he's a right, 10 year old yeah, conducting the, the goddamn circus band, playing his dad's parts. And so part of the analysis is, you know, he really never had quote unquote a childhood, right? It was, he was a pro by a very young age. So he is, and he is, he's just the technique, the power and the ability to play high, but to play full tone, the articulation, the control, you know, he's, he's, he's amazing. You know, the band, some of these recordings, I feel like every phrase is like a Lego block and they all (laughs) click together. But there isn't any flow. You can always kind of see the seams. You know, I've got this recording of, for some reason, I've really gotten into the Spider's Feast by this French composer, Roussel. I don't know how you say his name properly, but I, you know, 
whatever his name is, who wrote kind of from Impressionism to Post-Impressionism. And there's this ballet score, and I found this LP of it I love. And I got this other recording of it, and it just felt like every single phrase of that piece was beautifully played, but kind of set like beads on a chain. It didn't quite mm. flow. Uh, and for Impressionism, it's kind of important. It does. You know, you're not supposed to see the edges. And yeah, uh, I don't feel like James's band has a very good horizontal feel on this recording. No. And there is a sense of just, you know, I mean, Trumpet Blue, some of the stuff they're playing is kind of almost circusy. It's this yeah. blaring, technically super secure, but not necessarily emotionally effective stuff. And, you know, and he plays some of his greatest hits that he played throughout his life. You know, he was a guy that just right. he toured with his band pretty much till he dropped dead. I got to admit, this was the hardest one for me to get anything out of. Not that I'm not impressed by him as a player, but and again, this whole genre of music for me is is really hard. Past, you know, I love Ellington, I love some of Basie, and I love small groups of the 30s and 20s, and you know, and I some Armstrong's big band stuff are really it's only Armstrong anyway. The group is completely irrelevant. I like that, but beyond that, I start to kind of hit a wall. So yeah, I didn't didn't love it. I mean, it's I guess it's one way to learn about Harry Nearing. Some people say he was like peaking around late 50s, early 60s when he got into his bassy phase. I, I don't know. Uh, I just haven't heard enough. So anyway, prelim- preliminary thoughts. Yeah. I think he's a dead fascinating figure. Uh, I, I think most of the things that people say about his playing are pretty spot on. Um, there are a few detractors. We might as well mention them. Billie Holiday thought he sucked. Like she really, she had yeah, okay. nothing good to say about his playing. And she said, you know, everything was second rate. And she also accused him of racism. And huh. that is not something you hear from most of the other players who he, yeah. he played with. Billy's biography is full of some edgy claims. You know, she, she says some things about a lot of people that, you know, are not necessarily. She gilds the lily. Let's put it that way from time to time. So I don't know um, if, if that's true of James. But she was one of his detractors. There's a handful of others out there. But, you know, there are a whole bunch of other players who just thought the world of him. Uh, Louis thought he was great. Clark Terry uh, used to tell people, this guy, you got to listen to him. He's, he's a really good player. I guess I like him. I do like him as a player. I think it was funny. I think it was uh, Benny Goodman who said he, he called, even though he more or less discovered him or, you know, made, brought him to notoriety by bringing him into his band. And that might have been Goodman's best band when, when Harry James was in right, it. Right, right. Um, because yeah. he had just star, star soloists at that point. He had Lionel Hampton. You know, that that was a good band. Anyway, Benny Goodman used to call it Chinese playing. He said it was he, when, when Harry James would open up that incredibly wide vibrato, you know, he, he called it playing Chinese. I don't know what that means. It's just what Benny Goodman would say. <laughs> it just means random racism. I don't know. It's, <laughs> it's randomly racist and obnoxious and, you know, basically saying, I don't like that. And yet, you know, he was smart enough to recognize this guy is bringing the kids in. We need to, you know, hang on to this guy. Apparently, he had an iron lip 
for most of his career, right. like w- was just able to play high and loud. And as you pointed out with great articulation and play insane amounts, you know, he, he, it's one thing to lead a big band as Ellington did for, you know, 40 years from behind the keyboards, especially when half the time you're letting Billy play, right. It's another to front with, with the trumpet section and to basically be playing the leads on, one after another of these high wire act songs. I mean, even Louis cut it out after a while, and James just his longevity is insane. And then he's one of the first jazz guys to discover Vegas. Like he he took the band to Vegas, and we'll talk about this again when we get to Woody Herman. He took the band to Vegas, and they became a fixture for a period of seven or eight years in Vegas, just doing the stuff, doing the, and in a weird way, Harry James in Las Vegas sounds exactly right you know because by that point he's a legacy act he's just doing his greatest hits but he can still do his greatest hits at an incredibly high level and he can sleep with someone new every night if he wants you know (laughs) and he did (laughs) and he did you know so you know he was one of the first big jazz acts yeah i just i i like the energy uh of his playing i actually prefer the earlier stuff to this sort of brassy broad brush strokes stuff i think he can be a subtler player than he shows on this day but you know this is a greatest hits collection by capital and it's basically it's the barn burners that he would have been known for in his heyday and my god he he's gonna tear them up and he does a fine job on them but he could also play a ballad. He got accused of playing them in a sort of schmaltzy fashion. But he could play a pretty ballad when he was younger. He didn't. He didn't have to. I think the schmaltziness uh, attack comes from the wide vibrato. You know. So if if you're gonna play Willow Weep for Me in this insanely wide vibrato, people are gonna sound like you're you're pimping it or something. Well, and he added strings, right, to his, his big band right. for a while. Right. I think that, too, was considered, you know, a bridge too far. It's, you know, easy listening right. now. So. Right, right. And, um, you know, he's not Mitch Miller. You know, he's never goes that no. far. Um, you know, yeah. he's, he's not in that league. Um, there's there's always a hard, hard-edgedness to him. You know, there's always this... this there's always this angularity to his play. He's, he is... Uh, He's May- he's Maynard Ferguson before Maynard Ferguson, but without uh-huh. you know quite as many pyrotechnics. But there, I can imagine Maynard Ferguson probably had many many Harry James records in his collection. Yeah, and of course Harry, uh, his tone was fuller and more rounded than Maynard's, which tends to be the squeal. Yeah, wait, Maynard's. You know, it's yeah. more of a showboat. Thing. And they they mentioned that that if you've seen like Louis Armstrong or Right. I'm not so sure about Dizzy Gillespie. You can see the imprint of the mouthpiece on their lips. Right. And that James's technique, and also I just wonder, he seems to be a very thin-lipped person if you look at him. Yeah. But whatever his, his knack was, is that he, the way he played didn't didn't do that. You know, he had a way of playing that, and apparently a very unusual mouthpiece, it just kept him from stressing his, his embouchure the way most trumpet players tended to do, who didn't yeah, have the technique that, he had. Yeah. You know. I read about like his embouchure was just perfect. Like he had perfect embouchure, and he never had you know mouthpiece problems or lip problems, which are just common. It's just common for trumpet players, especially in long careers. You know your lip starts to look pretty fucking chewed up, and he never had that issue. It didn't happen to him. It was the pencil yeah. mustache. There you go. <laughs> yep. Yeah, so just a strange figure. I mean, my sense is is that it was. He loved music. He had great musical talent. 
He didn't necessarily have a strong aesthetic agenda. It was a kind of a, the way he made money. And, you know, he also apparently loved baseball as much or more than music and always made oh, his yeah. teams play baseball. And <laughs> they, they Apparently, um, Levinson has a whole thing. You probably remember reading this. All the big bands back then used to play uh, softball and baseball against each other. And Harry James made a point of recruiting players for his band who could play. Like, if you couldn't play softball well, you could play baseball well, you didn't make his band because there was, you had to be able to hit and field and run. Like, it was, they took that shit seriously and they would play other big bands regularly. That like, It was a thing. Like, they would actually. Well, I think he did especially. I mean, in other words, yeah. he was especially you know, fixated on whether or not his team won. Yeah, apparently, they Buddy would... Rich is funny because you think a drummer would be super coordinated, but apparently he sucked at baseball. He was well, in the band off and on, but <laughs> I've got I've got stuff to say about that in a second too about Buddy Rich. He's you know Buddy Rich is a little little guy, and we'll, we'll talk about him in a minute. But um, okay, yeah, apparently James would stop the bus on sunny days and make the guys get out and you know practice. You can imagine, can you imagine Ellington telling? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> can you imagine Ellington telling uh, some of those guys, "Hey fellas, put the gin down. We're gonna go out and you know we're gonna field some grounders," you know? They would be like, you're out of your fucking mind, dude. That is not happening, you know? But Harry James took that, he, he took it incredibly seriously, which I think is very funny that it mattered that much to him. I mean, you know, whatever, every, everyone deserves their passion. It just seems a shame that maybe he didn't have some better players in his band sometime because maybe they couldn't run fast or something. It seems really silly, but <laughs> whatever. But yeah, if you look, you know, in terms of what's out there, there's some greatest hits compilations. You know, go on Amazon, you look for Harry James. There's like one avid double CD release of four of his albums. But right. he's just not someone who has been canonized, collected. You know, a lot of his stuff, you know, the Capitol, as far as I know, you can't get his, his individual albums he made for Capitol unless some specialty labels out there reissuing them. They're just gone. You know, they weren't kept in the catalog. Whereas you can't get everything Ellington recorded, but you can get fucking close. And Ellington recorded just obsessively. But if you look at his, you know, repertoire in the later years, they tended to be theme albums, suites, uh, various. It wasn't just, and here's some more songs. You know, there was tended right. to be themes behind him. Whereas you got the sense that Harry was just, you know, he, for a while, he's like, well, let's try playing like Basie. And so he had people run him arrangements that sounded like Basie. And, you know, for a while, he may, he maybe toyed with Bebop a little bit and he could apparently play it but yeah, he didn't yeah. seem to have like a goal other than keep the band going you know when he was in vegas apparently they paid him a gambling allowance under the table <laughs> because wow. he was an obsessive gambler along with being an obsessive womanizer and you know it just so he just you know his his life story doesn't seem to be one of it's of great musical talent but not great musical ambition so anyway, uh, that's that's James. Do you want to move on to Woody, or what, what would you like to do next? Um, we could, yeah, we could go to Woody if you like. We could talk about the Woodster, the Woodman. <laughs>
the other kind of straight ahead big band. And as you mentioned earlier, you know, Woody in contrast to James did kind of experiment and move along with the times and certainly had a number of great musicians. He seemed to pick people based on purely musical skill, not just baseball. Right. He himself was not a great virtuoso. He was not like one of the great clarinet players. But as you said, you know, modest vote. And one thing I noticed is, you know, James is a sentimental vocalist. And then this particular disc we're listening to, and I don't really have much background on it uh, because you're the one who owns all the music in this particular sequence (laughs) or, you know, has access to it. But they're all kind of like, one, his singing style is this weirdly cool, isn't quite the right word, but it's, it's extremely offhand. I told you I love you, now get out. I told you I love you, now get out. Everything's rosy and everything's Jake, but just how much can a good man take? I told you I love you, now get out. Maybe cynical is the right word. It's in a lot of the songs early on, there's some romantic ones later, but are just like, get out, I, I don't need you, go away. <laughs> you know? so right, kind of right. Anti-sentimental. And there was a shocking number, I guess, you know, when I think of Woody Herman, I think, not, I don't think of him that often. You know, I had Feeling So Blue, probably an album he did in the 70s. And it was okay. It didn't knock me on my ass. And then I somehow some, had some light, reunited, some concert where the, the gang got back together and celebrated him. Like a double album. I'm not sure if I even own it anymore. And, you know, again, it's like, well, because I knew it's a name you hear, but it didn't quite cathect to it. You know, it was okay. So I've never gotten deeply into Woody. This is... It's, I was surprised how many vocals were on it because yeah. for me, it's like, okay, he's not bad, but you know, I'd rather hear Stan Getz or Al Cohen or Suit Sims sure. or Serge Chaloff, you know? And, uh, as I said, that just the kind of, I don't know if it's quite hipsters, right? But just, you know, the, these songs that are very much about anti-romantic sentiments and that one weird one about my friend stole my wife and my money. It's just like kind of offensively racist. <laughs> So, yeah, I, those were my favorites, but so well, what background do you have? When, when, what era were these from? Who who was involved here? Yeah, so the, the, I do have some of that stuff. So the, this is, of course, the last of the um, woodchoppers, so to speak, from '47, uh, uh, from this period of '44 to '47. Oh, okay, um, okay. It's a weird, it's a weird mix that that this is a mosaic set. And it's a weird mix because it's an overlap from what was known as the first herd, which was actually a bebop oriented big band. And then he shifted uh, into, you know, the so-called four brothers period. And he's actually known uh, the band that he had before the, the first band that he led starting in about 37 became known as the band that plays the blues. And that's that's what they did. That was their specialty. The, the label on the box describes accurately it's got the contents. And then he is this extraordinary figure, Woody Herman is, who embraced new stuff. He didn't hear new stuff and 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 say, oh, that's terrible. I can't make money on it. He he is a genuine innovator, or at least a genuine engager with new stuff. So from 40, sorry, from uh, 40, I guess, late 45 until about 
1947, he is actually taking bebop seriously and, you know, having bebop chart arrangements for his big band. But he can't really make a lot of money on it. And then he goes <laughs> into this period of, you know, the four brothers and that kind of sound. And eventually they are all replaced at one point or another. But this is the the, the second herd, right? Um, and that runs from, you know, 40, 46 uh, through about 1968, 1969, at which point he discovers fusion. Like, you know, in the early 70s, he starts playing fusion arrangements of of big band stuff. Like he's he, he's willing to embrace new traditions. And, you know, he records right up until the end of his life. Like the guy has this 50-year career. Um, and... The, the person probably he deserves to be, you know, linked to or compared to the most would be Art Blakey, because like Art Blakey, he's a great nurturer of young talent that then goes on to become great players in their own right. I mean, forget about just the, the four brothers stuff. There are players who are still alive today who cut their teeth in his band, like, you know, Alan Broadbent. There's a whole generation of musicians, many of whom seem to have had uh, a life on Concord, which was his last label, who came through his band in um, the 70s and 80s. He's this important figure, you know, who nurtures all kinds of interesting uh, players, um, maybe not players who are known as first-ranked players in the latter half of his career, but still really good players. Michael Moore, right? Who else am I thinking of? I had a list here somewhere. There's a bunch of players. Um, I mentioned Alan Broadbent. There's a bunch of guys who sort of come through his later band. So he's he deserves props for, like Ellington, keeping a band going for a long time and, more importantly, having a certain kind of musical spine a willingness to try stuff and not simply sell out and do whatever's commercial, but to try and incorporate new sounds into whatever he's doing. And he's a great talent spotter. You know, he just finds people. He's not an arranger, but he knows good arrangements when he hears them. And he knows guys who can, and women who can do good arrangements. And so he hires them. So he's, he's, he's got a lot of, he's got a lot on the ball. It seems to me there's, he's a lot to recommend him. Did you hate this stuff or no? I didn't hate it, no. I mean, you know, Four Brothers is a pretty famous tune. So that was kind of cool to hear the original of. I don't know whether I've got some version of it somewhere. I just couldn't tell you at this point. Uh, I certainly heard it before. Like I said, it was a mix of, it was odd in that, that, you know, I'd say half of the album, I didn't feel like needed to be preserved for posterity, but I don't. <laughs> right. You know, I, when I was up in Wisconsin, I was on vacation. I just came back. We took my nephew to the Railroad Museum in Green Bay, Wisconsin. And they have some amazing steam engines there. And there's something about steam engines that, that for some people, you just kind of wish they'd never go away. 
You know, they're just um, these amazing giant machines. They're kind of beautiful in a weird way. And they're incredibly impractical and inefficient. And there's really no need for them at this time. But there's just something cool about them. And I feel like, you know, if you read, big band fans are a little bit like that, right? You know, why can't the big bands come back? You know, it was this amazing time when dozens of these organizations of 16 or 17 people crisscrossed the nation. And the, the nation's popular music involved at least a certain subset of people, you know, caring who was playing second tenor saxophone in so and so's band and who stole whose trombone player and, you know, and it's just it's just hard to imagine how this happened and then it's like it's gone. And then how did that why why can't it be why can't we have steam locomotives? Why can't we have big bands anymore? And the answers are somewhat economic, but behind that of course it's cultural, right? There was a, a moment where youth culture was expressed through these organizations. And then that moment passed and youth culture moved on. And you know, there's never been another moment where what young people demanded was an organization of 15 or 16 people who all played instruments you know it just it's always been something a little bit more economically viable that is smaller Here's a, here's a factoid that will kind of, I think, is an illustrative factoid about American culture. Um, you know, Woody Herman's band, believe it or not, played the Super Bowl. They played the Super Bowl in 1973. And I can't make up my mind. I think I can actually make up my mind. When I first heard that, I'm like, you're fucking kidding me, right? Because when we think of Super Bowl, epic Super right, Bowl yeah. performances, we think of, you know, Prince. Or Janet Jackson's nipple, right? I mean, we think of these things, right, that happen. Um, and then you don't just, you just don't think big band jazz, Super Bowl. Those are two words that don't go together, two phrases that don't go together. On the other hand, as we've no doubt learned in recent years, you know, um, the Shield, the NFL, is just about as culturally retrograde uh, an institution as you can possibly have in the United States today. You know, they're, they're a good 30 to 40 years behind on all kinds of things. Um, so it's kind of appropriate that they had a big band play at Super Bowl seven, you know, in 1973. Kind of makes a certain small amount of sense since that music was had enjoyed its heyday 40 years before. So why not have Woody Herman there? I'm sure it made a lot of people really happy. And as I said, you know, Maynard Ferguson was the last time, the last gasp of a big band organization that made any kind of money or cultural impact. So, right. yeah, I mean, you know, even in the 70s, it's it's still there. I mean, there are still people who are remembering it and wanting to celebrate it, and and it never completely disappears. There's always, you know, I saw Brian Seltzer or Setzer, right. uh, Greatest Hits or something live, and, you know, to some degree that it was a mix of celebrating punk rockabilly and, you know, jazz at some level. So, I mean, there are moments where there's a swing revival or whatever, and, you know, it's not that it never happens, but it, it's kind of become a minority thing since the 70s. There's never really been another moment for it. So, yeah, I, you know, this it, it's 
it's odd. I mean, I have not listened to the other six discs yet, and uh, you know, I'll try to get to them at some point and see. I, my guess is if I was going to listen to this much, I make a mixer. Uh, I don't right. necessarily need to hear Woody's vocals more than once or so. Not yeah. that he's terrible or all out of tune. It's just you know they're just not that exciting. They aren't they aren't that great. Yeah, he he reminds me of um, he reminds me a lot of Johnny Mercer, except Johnny Mercer sells out the corniness of the lyrics much more often as a vocalist, whereas Woody Herman's always just a little bit. I can't decide if it's to his credit or not. He's a little more tasteful. He's a little bit more restrained. Um, whereas Johnny Mercer is just willing to ham it up on everything. Um, and w- w- Woody's like, no, that's that's a bridge too far. You know, I just won't do that. But um, he certainly deserves he just he deserves a certain amount of respect for the willingness to engage in evolving tradition and not simply become a legacy act doing the same. You know, he never was Harry James. He never was like, I'm going to do Sarah Birabin until I die. He's going to keep trying new stuff. Um, the other thing I was going to say, I was going to, to your point about wanting to pick best subs, I totally get that. This mosaic box set is for Woody Herman completists. I mean, it's for people who are like, ah, yes, and Stan gets his alternate take on, you know, it's for those people. One could imagine, you know, mosaics sets are comprehensive and only for someone who lives and breathes Woody Herman's different units will that be essential. Um, I can imagine there's like a good two-disc compilation that left out all the alternates and just cherry-picked the best stuff, most of which won't have Herman's vocals on it. Uh, That would be like a really good value for money. Um, It's just this sort of came across the transom, and so I snapped it up and started listening to it. And There are people out there in the world, I know you'll find this hard to believe, Pat, there are people out in the world who don't need to hear every single version of the various studio sessions that went to make up pet sounds by the beach boys, you know, (laughs) they could just, they could just listen to pet sounds. Right. Um, and this, uh, Woody Herman collection is for the people who want every fucking variant of this personnel over five years. And, you know, I could totally see why you'd be like, can we just have a greatest of, you know, one CD set, maybe, you know, just 20 cuts and be done with it, as opposed to all the alternates and all the vocals. I totally get what you're saying. Yeah, they were doing um, Mosaic, the, the reissue label, which is still chugging along, was doing a, a few years back, a version of Duke Ellington's small group recordings. And I, I love those recordings, but yeah, the, the, the thicket of alternates, I just, and I was, three of the four recordings we're talking about today have alternate takes, and I edited right. every one of them out of the playlist. I know it's like, I'm not going to hear a second attempt by Buddy Rich, but right. Buddy Rich and Max Roach to kill me. They only get one, one attempt. And if I dodge the bullet then, so I, <laughs> so I, I don't know in a way, I guess it's up to you. I, the last big band album is this, uh, first time. Ellington and Macy, do you, do you want to do that? Or do you want to do Roach and, 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 and Rich? I don't care. They're both they're both comical in their own strange way. So whatever yeah, they're you both examples. Is you know, the old uh, can art of you know that a dog walks on its hind legs is impressive at all. One does not expect it to do it well. And yeah, right. well maybe I guess let's do Basie Ellington first.
yeah, these are two albums. That the, the basis of them is putting a separate ensemble in each stereo speaker. Yes. Which is a terrible idea. It's that, especially the big band. I mean, it makes no yeah. fucking sense at all. <laughs> Duke's band is in the people. left channel. <laughs> Count's band is at the right. You know, seriously? Se- oh, well, right. I can are, hear Freddie Green, you know? I mean, it's, right. It's, yeah, there you go. You can uh, understand the nuances. Well, in a sense, these are both artifacts. And really, Ellington Basie and Columbia in 1961 is kind of late for this trend. But in the 50s, it is. there is this fascination with stereo sound. A while back, we talked about what was like bongos, flutes, guitars, or something. I can't yeah, remember. Yeah. And it, you know, it was an album meant to showcase your stereophonic sound in the 50s on your bachelor pad when you were taking Harry James leftovers and trying to seduce them. <laughs> there was just this, this, you know, kind of almost childlike fascination with the fact that you could have sound in one spot, one in the other, and then back and forth. And so, yeah, these two recordings uh, really play that up. And in a sense, also just to show how loud your stereo could be and yeah. the James recording to some ways like this. And this too is just like, is your, can your woofers handle two big bands at once? Are your right. tweeters capable? You know, so it's kind of audiophile penis length measuring, you know, can yes. you handle this? And I'm sure to some degree, I think there may have been a fancy version of this uh, on some audiophile label purely because it's a sonic test, but it was also kind of a spiritual test. <laughs> Can you get through the dark night of, of both bands? I mean, I will say, you know, I like Ellington and Basie the most of any artist by far on this, on the show. So, you know, there's a little, little things to savor when, when Basie and Ellington are playing piano together. Right. Couldn't they have made an album of that? That would have been fun. Oscar Peterson made two duet albums with with Count Basie, and those were actually kind of fun, you know. Yeah. <laughs> so talk about first time. First time. First time. Uh, so the problem with the first time is it's the same problem that one often has, where anyone not part of his organization records with Ellington. Basically, he's gonna fuck them over. Um, yeah, and Ellington, I mean, he just screws people over, you know, I mean, it's just, they come in and, and he will arrange for them, but it's always, he always kind of comes out on top and, you know, he and Strayhorn, and, you know, there, it was at, it was, they were sort of hosting. And so their organization is hosting the Basie organization and Strayhorn and Ellington are doing all of the arrangements here. Like they're writing the arrangements, you know, Ellington's, he's got arrangers. I'm sorry. Um, Basie's got arrangers, Frank, Frank West. I mean, he's got guys who can do arranging, but, uh, yeah, these are basically all Ellington and Strayhorn arrangements. And the best part was reading the liner notes, right? And they sort of interview first account, you know, the usual, you know, how does one discriminate against different ranks of royalty? And so they, and they ask Basie, you know, what do you think of Duke? And he's like, he's the greatest ever. He's, he's the top. He's the blah, 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 just effusive praise. And they ask Ellington and he's like, 
Count has one of the better bands. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, yeah, of course. It's like, yeah. it's like, like really, dude? Yeah. I am the, yeah. Like, really, dude? I mean, what he says is nice, because whatever Ellington says is always very well put. He's very ele- he's, he's, a, he's got a gift for, you know, he's got a real gift of gap. And, you know, it's it's praise, but it's just a, it's just a couple of notches below what ba- Basie was effusive. And Ellington's like, it's not exactly like this, but he's like, they're pretty good. <laughs> Come on, guy. Really? And then... So, Obama, then, you're, you're likable enough. <laughs> you're likable enough. You're likable enough, Hillary. Um, and then maybe the ultimate sort of bad moment, uh, and it, you can even hear it on one of the takes, they're going to do Take the A Train. It's, I think it's uh, one of the sub uh, alternate takes, uh, number 10. And so there's a take the A train take, which is the Ellington, you know, it's the theme song, right? And Ellington basically says, you know, take the lead count. And apparently Basie like snuck out of the studio because he's like, I, I can't play the lead. I can't, I can't do the intro to that. Like, that's not happening, you know, like, and it was like, <laughs> it's like, it's like Duke is gaslighting count Basie. He's like, okay, <laughs> count him off count, you know? And, and he's like, what the fuck? And he like literally snuck out of the studio and so it's Duke's intro, you know, and then it's sort of a, you know, failed take because Count is, Count Basie's not in the fucking studio. You know? <laughs> it would be like, it would That's be hilarious. like, you know, Frank, it would be like Frank Sinatra saying to someone, we're going to do New York, New York. All right, Dino, you know, sing take it. the lead. Sing it. You know, like, are you really going to do that? You know, and apparently it just rattled Basie completely. And he, and that's kind of how Duke is. We've talked about this, like Money Jungle, plenty of the songbooks that he does. It's just not playing with Duke is like a you know a big legacy thing for you. It's a big mark. You know, it's a it's a it's an important landmark in your career. But rarely are these events the smooth showstoppers that one would expect. There's always this weird little friction that it seems like Duke is always kind of getting a little bit over on his partners right. on his interlocutors and that's how it feels here even though there's some wonderful soloing here there's some wonderful trading gonzalves and some of basie's uh, horns play off of one another it's really nice There's some nice interplay here, but it feels like a Duke date. It just feels like a Duke date. It does not feel like a collaboration by any stretch. Even when they're playing Jumping at the Woodside, it's just not, it feels much more like this is Duke's show. And it's tossed off. I mean, the arrangements are kind of back of the napkin stuff. You know, the first tune is just I've got rhythm changes played very quickly with soloing over it. And there's like two or three blues and... You know, right. it's just it, it. There's certainly no sense that they're trying to take. When you think of the colors Duke pulls out of his ensemble, it's not like those are being doubled. It's like they're being quartered. You know, they yep. both become much simpler riff playing organizations. There's no sense. He's like, oh my god, I've got 30 people to play with. What can I do? It's just like, all right, let's get through the session. 
let's make sure it's not a train wreck. Let's make sure it works at some basic level. It's a marketing ploy, yeah. And he could always do that. He could kind of fake his way through any situation with minimal effort, minimal prep, and get a decent result. You know, not brilliant, but, you know, you come up with, like, the songs he came up with for Money Jungle or whatever, where it's like, okay, that's like your, literally, your 50th best blues idea. But, you know, I've heard worse. <laughs> it's Ellington. He's not, you know, he's talented. So it's just, it's, it's nowhere close to his, his best. And it's just such a weird idea. I mean, it's all, mar- it's, it's all marketing. Someone's. Yeah. I've got like a hundred fucking recordings by the guy. I never picked this up. I have all, right. almost everything he did on Columbia. I don't have this one. There's a reason for that. I'm like, well, right, yeah, right, okay. Right. I've got, you know, I've got this obscure stuff, you know, uh, Duke Ellington plays his songs from like all American and, you know, it's just some of his most obscure, mediocre Columbia albums. I finally broke down and got not this one. <laughs> I don't really want to right. hear them, and it's like not that I hate Basie. It's just why would you put them together? What's the point of this? It's a marketing ploy, you know. Obviously, it's a marketing ploy. And someone thought, you know, it's long past time we had these two guys and their bands together, so they kind of play it like a battle royale. But you know, to have that, you actually have to have someone like Basie say, "All right, we're going to blow those fuckers off the stands." And Basie is just—that's not who he is. That's—he's not into that, you know. And and the date. As you said, you know, the liner notes make it clear this was a day affair. They came in, you know, they worked out some charts, they recorded, they were out. You know, it was like a, it was a day affair. There were some explosions at this. It was at this date that Juan Teasel uh, left the band for real. Um, oh, uh, and he plays with James at one point, yeah. Yes, Juan Teasel leaves the band on this date because, and I'm not making this up, I think I read this in the liner notes, Cat um, Anderson took one of the symbols off the kit and threw it at Juan Teasall. And Teasall basically, there's a Cat Anderson, it's one of Trump players, it's Cat or Cootie. And Teasall said, that's it, Duke. That fucker is gone or I'm gone. And Duke's like, see ya. He's <laughs> like, okay. Wow. And that's how Juan Teasall left the band because there was like a fist fight between Teasall and one of the trumpeters, um, uh, and it wasn't, um, it, I forget, it was Basie's drummer on that one, but it was one of uh, Duke's uh, trumpet players who like literally threw a cymbal at Juan Teasall, apparently. And it wasn't the first time that Teasall gave a me or him, uh, gave a me or him ultimatum. Supposedly when Mingus auditioned or was with the band for a brief tryout, Teasall said it's me or him. And Duke fired or didn't rehire. I guess Mingus was with him for a very short time. I don't know the full, you probably know this story, but it was Juan Teasall laying down an ultimatum saying, there's no way I'm playing with that guy. And Duke's like, okay. And that was it, you know, but this time he let, he let him walk. He's like, all right, it's been, it's been long enough. See you later. Good luck. It had been a long time. Wow. Yeah, apparently it was at this recording date. Yeah, and that's another thing. You know, Duke's drummers, Basie, of course, has this fantastic rhythm section. He's known for yep. it. You know, the, you know, his drummers, Ellington's drummers just get locked in this kind of shuffle beat or whatever you want to call it. And it just, there's not a lot of subtlety going on. It just kind of rocks along. I was listening to this on the car where the audio environment wasn't great. It's like sometimes it seemed like it's all I could hear is this rhythm. And it seemed like from song to song, it didn't change that much. And, you know, so, yeah, it just, it's, this is way down on the list of of late Ellington for me. Yeah. I'd say 20th, 30th purchase in that zone you know the post 
50s stuff or the post mid 50s comeback, I'd say you can wait a long time to sample this one. It, it's got historical interest, you know, and again, I'm not trying to like it's not that it's Basie's fault. It's that, you know, no. as you said it. Ellington tended, you know, wh- whoever he was dealing with, you know, even he, he has an album with Sinatra when he was on reprise. The label of Sinatra yeah. was kind of running. And that's a little bit awkward and standoffish. It doesn't seem to come off the way it should. It just he just doesn't like. People getting in his light. He, he he's, you really got to come cap in hand to the guy. Uh, and I, you know, this is speaking of someone who's like inordinately fond of Duke Ellington. His music, I just, I adore. It's one of my favorite things of all time. He's a great exception to my general lack of interest in big bands. And yeah, this one, wow. But as a sonic showpiece, you know, if you want to test your speakers, if you want to scare the neighbors, and there is some great soloing, as you said. I mean, Gonzalez, man, he just that fucker can play. I mean, sometimes you forget it because it's all sort of mealy mouth. But damn, I mean, he really. No, he- He's, uh, I, I, I'm all in on Gonzalez all the time. And uh, it was Cat Anderson. Just I had to find out. Oh. I had to make sure I had this right. It was Cat Anderson okay. was fucking around. And uh, that was it for uh, that was it for Juan Tizal, who is listed as only playing tambourine on this album. Wow. Well, and Cat was the, Hen- yeah, the Harry James, the Mater Ferguson of, of the Ellington band. He was a high note specialist. And I'm sure of the two of them, of the two of them, he was the draw, I'm sure, for crowds. And also, just the he was a famous troublemaker. He often got into shit. Like he was. I didn't know that. Okay. He was catting around, huh? (laughs) Yeah. There's a story for I think I'm pretty sure I have this right. So for the famous Newport session, that you know was the big comeback, right? For for Ellington, the Newport session where Gonzalez played his umpty million uh, choruses, right? On on the big Newport session, a bunch of the guys were missing after the first set because they were hung over. Um, so some of the guy, and Cat Anderson was one of them, if memory serves. Um, there were like three guys who weren't on the stand or who were fuzzy when, when Duke took the stand for their first set, and he was pissed. And then at the second set, they played like a house on fire. And in part, when you read the accounts of that date, it had a lot to do with the fact that Duke was pissed as shit at half the band for being hung over and late. And it was an issue. And I'm pretty sure memory serves Cat Anderson was in the middle of that shit as well. Yeah, well, and one thing we haven't talked about much, we don't need to dwell on, but, you know, the big band lifestyle where you're just playing night after night after night after night and often traveling long distances. At some point, apparently, you know, Harry James wanted a clause in his contract where it's like, I don't want to travel more than 300 miles a day. (laughs) You know, just find me gigs that, you know, I don't have to be because it's just it's brutal. You know, week after week after week, year after year of playing just gig after gig, all these different cities, you know, to keep this kind of unit viable at all. It just took incredible bone-breaking effort, and I'm sure it just would wear you down day after day to cope with it. And that's why you have the alcoholism and the, and the various behavioral issues, you know, among other reasons. But just just the sheer stress of the lifestyle, and uh, you know, it's, it's it's not quite traveling from gig to gig on private jet the way the fanciest rockers do. It's you know, you're back on the bus, and for you know, yeah. a great deal of these musicians, a great number of these musicians, you're dealing with casual racism all the time and sometimes very serious racism so yeah especially in duke's mixed race band you know i mean the, the venues that they would play and the ones that they chose not to play you know it was like a real thing
I don't know if I'm ready. <laughs> this is the album that makes me wake up screaming at night. No. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. That's Rich versus Roach. <laughs> one thing I'll say. <laughs> one thing I'll say for it is that um, it's 33 minutes long before you add the alternate takes, and that was probably just an act of mercy. They figured that's all the the listener can take. But this is a drum showcase released on Mercury in kind of the late 50s. Where's the date on that? I got to admit I was surprised because the arranging on Rich vs. Roach, which is 1959, was done by um, Gigi Grice. Right. And it has that kind of, it, it is, once you figure that out, it makes perfect sense. Sounds like the other stuff he did. And it's got, to me, that kind of early to mid-50s cool about the arrangements. You know, just the sound of them, the chords, the, the, the approach of the arrangements. Now, the drumming, obviously, is the furthest thing on earth from cool. Can you imagine the birth of the cool featuring Buddy Rich? Miles Davis and Buddy Rich. I just, I can't, can't, and Miles like loud drummers, but I can't imagine that. No, I, the thing that's, yeah. So where do you stand on Buddy Rich? And don't say his throat. Where do you stand on Buddy Rich? (laughs) Well, I will say, you know, one thing with Harry James and the reason I got this book is if you had asked me two weeks ago or three weeks ago, who Harry James was, I probably would have remembered he was a trumpet player. If you'd asked me, did Harry James lead a big band? I would not have been sure. I just, you know, he was, he kind of was that obscure for me. I'd heard of him, but, you know. Now, Buddy Rich, you know, I knew about as a big band leader. There are some recordings, you know, he does, a, he's in a trio with Lester Young that I think is, is great. I mean, I, I, I'm not going to say that everything I've ever heard by him is, has got a problem or something. He apparently, at some point on a tour, this laid into this busload of musicians, you know, young guys in his band, and it was taped back in the days of cassette, and this rant became legendary. Oh really? I don't know about this. What did he say? Well, I, I I don't know. I think it was just it was apparently like twenty minutes of vitriol and four letter words and just incredible verbal abuse. I've never heard it. I've just heard about it. I've heard people talking about reassessing him, you know, can Buddy Rich be your hero if you've heard this 20 minutes of pure evil, you know, it's like Alec Baldwin's favorite answering machine messages or something. Right, 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 right. This, of course, in an era before everybody had a cell phone and everybody was recording everybody else. And I didn't, I wasn't quite young enough to see him or old enough to see him on like the Tonight Show. So he hasn't loomed large for me. I mean, he's known as the world's greatest drummer. But that's never been something I'm looking for in my life. So, right, right. And I just, you know, I, I think I've got one of his big band albums that, you know, we get random albums from the Capitol Records sales back when I was a kid because Capitol Records had a factory in the town I grew up in. And I think I had one of those and it didn't make much of an impression on me one way or another. So I, I don't know that I've got strong feelings about him. He's not somebody I've pursued listening to. I think you, you cooked me up with a, a, a box set of his small group recordings, and I really should listen to that sometime. I, I Out of curiosity, and, and I'm not trying to be dismissive, I just have never gotten around to it. But I, I think that's someone else. I don't recall having such a thing. Oh, I do. The classic do. Argo, Immarcy, and Verbs. There you go. Yeah, that's right. I think I do so. That. Or I got him too. I don't remember. I, I don't own the physical set. It's not something I would have dropped You know, 180 bucks on. It just, you know. Right, right. So are you a Another fan of, of Mr. Rich? No, <laughs> I've never been a fan. I'm not a fan. That will come as sacrilege to certain people in certain quarters, but I just don't care about the things that he can do really well. Um, he can play really loud. Don't care. He can. He, he's got a snare roll uh, tighter and faster than anyone else's. Don't really give a shit. He, he can do a lot of technical things, but I would take... A Tony Williams and what he can do on the cymbals 
or Max Roach. I mean, he can do all the oh, singles yeah. over Buddy over Buddy Rich any day of the week. I mean, he is this metronymically gifted, fast, um, and loud performer. And I just, you know, what he does, he does very well. But I don't really care that he does it. He's never interested me as a figure. Um, very much. Um, when I listen to recordings with him on them, I tend to be listening for other people. I believe, if memory serves, he uh, is featured on some of those jazz at their Philharmonic, you know, mm, blowout yeah. affairs. And I just can't give a shit. You know, when people listen to a drum solo or someone's just playing, you know, 16th notes repeatedly and then starts to work in other stuff, I don't give a fuck. I just, I'm like, when Neil Pert does it with Rush, I'm equally as bored. So it's not like, <laughs> you know, it's it's all boredom all the time for me when when, when we get these drum solos. Uh, the only time drum solos really work for me is when they're somehow organically related to the material in some way that kind of makes sense. I'll try and give it a quick example. Um, I saw Wilco on the first leg of their tour in Chicago when they were promoting Yankee Hotel Foxtrot. So I saw them their opening night of the tour in Chicago at the Aragon Ballroom. And they played, I forget which song it was. It's one of the songs off of, I think it's Summer Teeth, in which there's a sort of repeated chorus where Jeff Tweedy is singing the words, nothing, nothing, nothing. And it requires the drummer, to Glenn Cache, to hit the drums as hard as he can, repeatedly. And on the album, this repeated nothing, nothing, nothing will ever be the same again. But he keeps saying nothing, nothing. And they do it like 10 times on the recording. And on the live show, they did it like 50 times. And it just became this, and it's a drum solo of a guy literally playing in time with the rest of the band. Dun, dun. Dun, dun, and they kept doing it, and there was something cathartic and organic and thrilling about it. And I'm like, that's a drum solo I can get behind. I actually give a shit about that because it feels like it's part of this organic, massive whole, and it's not simply you know the ego of one player. I, I kind of like that. Whereas Rich for me is almost always, all the time, ego, and I just I don't care that much. I'm not saying he's not a great player. But nothing he does particularly interests or inspires me. And I know we have some listeners for whom they're not going to like to hear that, but I don't care. I mean, I just don't care. All props to him, but I, I don't find him that interesting or compelling a player. I think it would be fun to listen to him play with Maynard Ferguson and see who, you know, killed each other first. I just, they're just not that interesting to me. I mean, I've been told he's a good big band drummer, and I have not. Yeah. You know, he was good at driving a big band. Of course, he worked with Harry James for a few years. Yeah, he and, does. Harry James. You know, I, I have not, you know, listened to enough examples of that, because that's a different, you know, this is a small group, and I think people tend to think of Rich more as a big band drummer, and he did have his own big band that played right. rock numbers and, and things. Again, not a group I've collected, but it's out there. So, you know, I guess in a way also a Maynard Ferguson-esque figure in that he was a great technician who had a band that played rock as well as jazz. Right. Yeah. Just in prepping for this, I was watching some YouTubes of Buddy Rich. 
mostly of him talking because I just, you know, the playing after a while, it's like if you've heard one drum solo, you've heard a lot of them. Again, drummers, please don't send me your cards and letters. I already know you disagree with me. I get it. Anyway, so I was watching some interviews with him. There's one memorable interview of the Mike Douglas show where he basically said country music is all bullshit and only amateurs play it. Um, That was fun. (laughs) But then I I came across this video of this guy who's a drummer who is also kind of a – he's a physical trainer. So he's a big guy, but he's a a drum – he's a rock drummer and he teaches drumming. And he does this like half an hour video on why Buddy Rich is everything you shouldn't do behind a drum kit. Not in terms of how he plays, but his posture. And after he started talking about it, I realized Buddy Rich has the worst posture of any drummer ever. Like, he's really bad. And the older he gets, the worse it gets. Like, he is literally, his knees are up in his chest. He's hunched over. His neck is is strung out. And this guy is saying, you you know, I read or heard that Buddy Rich had all kinds of pains and aches in the following, you know, places late in his life. He's like, I'm not a physical thing. You know, I'm not not an orthopedist. I can't tell you. But I'm going to guess that a lot of this had to do with his playing. He sort of walks you through. This guy just had the worst posture. And then once I was aware of it, when I saw pictures, I would be like, that looks like it hurts. He likes to he liked to have his knees higher than perpendicular. And he liked to be over the kit. And he's, a, he's not a big man. He's a little guy, you know, and he likes to be over the kit and his arms are hunched forward and his head, his neck is all wrong. And I just get pains looking at him now. So whenever I hear him, I'm like, ow, for a different reason now. Yeah. So, yeah, I guess the opposite in that case, they're both. He was also a young performer like Harry James. Yeah. yeah and he yeah, also yeah. was sometimes accused of having kind of a permanently adolescent personality as a result but whereas james somehow developed this perfect trumpet technique so he could do it more or less perfectly you know clearly rich put together this kind of on his own this approach to the drums that was incredibly successful technically and you know he had great power and speed but was designed to break his body to pieces over time yeah so i was like wow again just a figure I, i i i've heard he's very very brash and I had meant to look up some Tonight Show appearances or something by him, but just had not gotten around to it. But of the two figures, I mean, Roach, and I've listened to, I remember watching Roach in the 70s or 80s where, you know, he just played a, a three-minute piece on a, a cymbal, and it was fairly compelling, <laughs> you know, the, right. because of the things he could do with it. And he's a very thoughtful guy and, and always yeah. trying out different uh, arrangements and different ensembles and you know, Rich was just kind of a force of nature. It just he, he drummed, and uh, he was really good at drumming. But again, not somebody who seemed to have a a strong aesthetic agenda. On a recent podcast, we 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 sang the praises lavishly of uh, M. Boom, which is a thing that uh, Roach did. Those all percussion albums. Which oh are yeah, just that was right. Dead fascinating, just really musical. I mean. It's not that Buddy Rich isn't a musician, but Max Roach is a great musician. He's not just a drummer. He's got a lot to offer, I feel like. And what Buddy Rich is known for are those, you know, solos for blowing Gene Krupa off the stand when the two of them dueled. You know, it's not even a fair fight. And so, you know, pairing Rich and Roach in this sort of battle of the drummers setting, I get the commercial appeal. This is a commercial appeal album. I get that. But... It's like Apple. It really is apples and oranges. You know, what Roach is really good at is not what, what Rich is really good at and vice versa. 
and putting them in different channels is completely stupid. I mean, <laughs> I would know, you know, in two bars who you're listening to, like, you know, immediately who's playing. So I thought that was kind of funny. It might've been more painful if it in both channels. So can you imagine yes. when mono, just all that drum coming at you? She was like, no, a lot of anyway, drum. Yeah. What did you think of the other players, though? Because there's some people here you like a lot. So. Well, you know, it's not the best showcase in the world for them. Uh, and by the way, we talked about Maboom, Max Roach's album, back in Podcast 67. And also talked about We Insist, his protest album, back on Episode right. 20. That was a while back. Yeah, so uh, we have two quintets here in the left, uh, the right channel, Buddy Rich, Phil Woods on alto sax, Willie Dennis on trombone, and a bass player and a piano that you never hear. And then yep. uh, you can't hear you can hear nothing of other rhythm section <laughs> players at all. I'm sure album. they're fine. They're there. And uh, in the left channel, Max Roach on drums, the Turrentine brothers, Stanley on tenor, Tommy on trumpet, Julian Priester on trombone, and Bobby Boswell allegedly on double bass. Yeah, we're told <laughs> there were bassists present. It also, this one, and I think of Mercury as a label with pretty good sound. I'd be fascinated yeah. to hear another version of this, but the version I have is kind of phasey. It's not great sound. It's no, like with the MP3 encoding or the, the digital encoding struggled to capture what was, I'm sure, very stressful percussive events, but I'd love to hear it on LP just to see if it sounded any better. But then again, I would never get it on LP because I don't want to hear it again. Right. So, yeah, I mean, there's Woods, of course plays some incredible solos. Turrentine's interesting. I mean, I love Stanley Turrentine. He he can play bop. That's not really his thing. You know, actual bop as opposed to hard bop. So, you know, he's. it took me a while. It's like, oh, yeah, that's Stan, isn't it? And again, I don't want to doubt. He's got some technique, as does Tommy. But, you know, it's not it's not his ballpark. It's not his wheelhouse, what I'm trying to say. Whereas, you know, Phil Woods obviously can play bop all day long. You know, Julian Priester, I don't know. I mean, I, this is not... The, the recording i you know i'm gonna go turn to your julian no maybe love love you know let's wait till ecm in the 70s for for stuff that's a little more distinctive so there's some arrangements like you know the cast bar or whatever that have some music to them figure eights is just drumming and to be honest right. you know as creative as max roach can be i don't feel like this is where you hear him being a real thoughtful drummer it's like it's he's trying to match sound and fury with with mac or with a uh, buddy so yeah it's there it's short it's short, especially if you skip the alternates, which I sure did. Well, I thought um, I, I like uh, the highlights here for me are uh, Limehouse Blues um, and uh, the Casbah.
Casbah sounds like D.G. Grice actually arranged it. So yeah, yeah. I mean, well, I know he arranged everything, but it actually sounds like one of his arrangements. And I was like, okay, this is okay. You know, Limehouse Blues at least lets other players get in on the fun of blowing right. a little bit. So it's not just the two drummers, you know, slamming away. But I also I just don't feel like this sort of versus format is really Roach's metier, right? I mean, I get I get what he would do it, right? You know, this is going to be a big seller. It's going to bring him some attention, right? It makes total sense from a marketing standpoint. But yeah. he's always I thought more of a counterpuncher as a drummer, more of a colorist. He's the great progenitor of the Tony Williams of the world. He's not the front and center Art Blakey in your face guy. So this format was never going to be ideal for him. Uh, and, and so, yeah, it's an, it's another uncomfortable pairing, I guess, in some ways. What is kind of fun to reflect on is the notion that there was a time, and this is for all four albums, there was a time in this country when this music was the popular music, when this music brought people out to dance and to celebrate and to be out in public. And all of these recordings, with the exception, I guess, of the Woody Herman recording, because it's you know compiled at the time, all of these recordings are kind of after the fact. And they're celebrating this format of, of competition and loudness that's a kind of bygone, it's already nostalgia by the time they're doing it, which is kind of interesting. This Rich versus Roche affair is, it's nostalgic for an earlier era where Dave Tuff and Gene Krupa would duel one another. It's already kind of past its sell-by date. The only one of these four albums, which is really kind of uh, authentic in a certain way, is the Woody Herman stuff because it's 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 recorded, you know, it's from it's from its time. It's not ten or fifteen years after its time, trying to call back that time. If that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, they do sing, sing, sing on this record, right. and you know, I listen. I my my folks had a LP of the thirty-eight. Carnegie Hall Goodman concert, and I've got an expanded version of it somewhere in digital. And yeah, Krupa, you know, that drum solo there, which is just, you know, kind of a tom-tom pattern, it is exciting. You know, it is part of the song. You know, Sing 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 is obviously at some level, almost everybody living's heard it. It's a bit of a cliche. But it's fun as hell, you know, and that's kind of a fun drum solo. And it really is more a solo part for drums, this part of the arrangement, it's not a lot of, it's not improvising that per se. You know, right. it may be the way he's delivering it or spinning it a bit. His personality and exuberance is coming through, but it's a known thing. And it, you know, it works in the arrangement. It builds excitement. It's, it's, it's maybe kind of campy or whatever, but it's fun. And yeah, two minutes of, of just super fast rolling around the kit and smashing everything in sight super loud. It's just, it's not fun. I, I, I don't find it that entertaining and you know another stereo demonstration record right you know you're going to stick it on and show off back when people would compare each other's systems i mean most people don't own a stereo now but back in the day you know that was a status symbol to have one and you'd show off how well it could perform yeah that was it was another one i can only listen to a few times it's like wow you know this has got to end soon (laughs) yeah so it's you know that's something that we talk about on a fair number of podcasts the degree to which you know the music is in some ways Many recordings are hearkening back to or trying to call back a period of commercial dominance or commercial relevance. And three of the four albums we were talking about this week, like now to most listeners, they are you know showpieces of their time. But in their own time, they were already nostalgic. 
Like we might look at them now for nostalgic purposes, but they were nostalgic the minute they were put on wax. Right. So, yeah, I mean, the Rich Roach thing is both epitomizing the 50s fascination with stereo, but trying to recreate the late 30s and and the excitement around big band jazz. Yeah, Yeah. Uh, It's the only one that's not a big band, but it still kind of feels like one, you know. It's as loud as one. (laughs) It's certainly as loud as one. Well, do you have any pop matters for today? Um, just one brief one. Um, go back to a point I made earlier. The Wilco song that I was trying to refer to earlier, I couldn't remember, was Misunderstood, um, ah. which has the chorus, I'd like to thank you all for nothing, 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 nothing <laughs> at all. And that's the one where live, it, it turns into a kind of whole band solo. But, you know, uh, when I saw it live, Glenn Cache, the drummer, was basically playing the same two notes you know he's hitting the same two toms over and over again until jeff tweedy decided everyone's hands had bled enough and he had milked the moment for maximum catharsis from the audience which you know i imagine everyone afterwards had to go get some first aid for the blisters they were suffering during that little extended kind of (laughs) solo rave up moment the only thing i listened to that's worth mentioning and we actually talked about, we dedicated a whole podcast to it. Just before uh, I left to come to the Midwest, I slapped into uh, the old rotation. It randomly came up. It was time. David Bowie's Black Star. Oh, and, um, yeah. It was the first time I listened to it in the four years since it was released. And I'm going to go out on a limb here and say, holy shit, it holds up well. I, I sort of figured when I plopped it in that I would go, oh, yeah, this is overrated. It's been four years, and we can all get past the fact that he recorded it and finished it two days before he died, and it's not as good as I remember, but it really is as good as I remember. Especially, you know, on this listen through, I was really taken with Donnie McCaslin's playing. The The jazz touches here are really solid. It's just a really coherent, well-thought-out work of art, and it is a work of art. It's, it's, a, it's a fine album. Uh, and I'm looking forward to, you know, now that it's in the rotation again, going through it a few more times and letting it kind of seep deeper into the consciousness. It's a great album, though. It really is fantastic. Yeah, I kind of thought I would have a I thought right. I thought I might have a oh, it's not as good as I remembered, but it really is. Yeah, well, I, you know, uh, coming up, maybe next time, maybe after that, I hope to talk about the Abbey Road remix. Mm. I got that on vinyl just coming home. I haven't listened to it seriously yet. I don't know what I'll make of it. I, the, the stuff done with the White Album was at least noti- noticeable. You don't want to, obviously you can't change it too much. I don't know that Abbey Road had major problems anyway, but I'll give it a listen, see what I think of it. I, that's coming up. Uh, the one thing I want to talk about briefly, and I have not listened to the music appropriate to this text, but a text that really resonated with the discussion of James in that book and Schmaltz was a book called Let's Talk about love and hmm. uh this was written by carl wilson not the carl wilson of the beach boys to my knowledge. <laughs> are you sure are i'm you pretty sure because sure, it's really coherent and uh, carl's dead <laughs> so 
But uh, there's a 33 and a third RPM series of paperbacks about various albums. And I've got to say, mm-hmm. the couple I picked up have largely been a disappointment. You, sh- you shared with me Parallel Lines, didn't you? I may well have, yeah. And that was okay. Right. The one on, on Love's Forever Changes was really big on how paranoid and dark Love was, despite the fact their band name was Love. But anyway, this was about Celine Dion's album, Let's Talk About Love. And it became this probing, ex, you know, with philosophical baggage of where does taste come from? Why do some people have such bad taste? What does it mean to have bad taste? Is there such a thing as bad taste? And it puts Celine into her cultural context. And she's from this area of Quebec. And this is the values they have. You know, it's amazing. And uh, it is just I haven't quite finished it yet, but it, it is brilliantly written. And, you know, I got to admit, I've, I've thought through and agreed with some of these ideas about taste for a while. You know, it's, it's not all new ideas to me, but, you know, a lot of them are culturally determined. A lot of them have to do with class. You know, the, the phenomenon of people in the record store who think they're better human beings than you because they like more obscure bands. You know, where did that come from? Why why would that mm. be? You know, what does that mean? You know, the idea of cultural capital. So he's ex- you know, exploring this, but but what he runs up against and why I haven't quite finished the book yet is that he keeps going back to, and the music I listened to and I thought was cool is this dark, cynical, you know. And it's like, you know, he keeps saying that the reason we pretentious, well-educated, blah, 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 people don't like it. It's like, she's not like the, he doesn't use this example. I'm not sure who his favorite bands are, but like The Cure or something. And what he doesn't seem to have any vocabulary for is that Celine Dion has nothing to do with Bob Dylan or punk rock or goth or whatever. She is a long series of people who sing other people's music that stretches back in American traditions, at least to Bing Crosby and, 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 Ella Fitzgerald and Billie Holiday. And, you know, I mean, there are people like this. It's just he seems never to have listened to anything but rock. And so it's like, dude, you can't if Celine Dion has problems, the way you talk about them is not by comparing her to like Motorhead or, you know, it's 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 talking about why she's not as good as Ella Fitzgerald. Right. Or as good as Billie Holiday or as good as, you know. So is this his weird sense? It's like, finally, he's really, really smart about aesthetics. And, and culture, but but there's this huge gap. It's like, dude, she's not doing that. She's doing what I believe is a very poor version of what these people are doing that you've never listened to. You you don't know who Mel Torme is, do you? So it was right. a weird, you know. It's like it's like okay, I I get it. I mean, this makes and he's probably fairly younger and hipper than I am and everything, and just and never listened to him. I'm thinking, yeah, I, I I had this aesthetic problem when I was in my 20s. I just didn't have reference points yet. I had not developed, you know. But now it's like, well, she's just not. You know, I mean, she's got an amazing voice, but I personally don't think her interpretations are as interesting or nuanced as all these other people who are not edgy or cynical or whatever. They're just better at the job of singing other people's music. You know, it's just, right. they're better at it. Ella Fitzgerald is fucking playing better. I mean, she just, I know that Celine Dion's got a big voice, but, but Ella Fitzgerald could cut it to fucking shreds. She's just got, you know, she could do things for their voice as Lang can. So, and I'm saying this, I gotta admit it, I didn't listen to a lot of Celine Dion. I'm probably never going to do that. <laughs> and again, and she is a cultural punching bag. And I, I got to say, it's interesting in that, you know, his stories are, she is actually a nice human being. If you run into her, she is not pretentious. And I've got to say, I've never, I've never disliked Celine Dion. I've got nothing against her as a human being. I, apparently she's had some weird meltdowns on talk shows and they're, they're memeable and everything. I, I just don't follow her. I, you know, and he 
goes in and now analyzes these and, and, and makes an argument that they're really not a bad thing and whatever dude. I mean he's great. He is really smart. I mean this is a, a neat book. It is the opposite of this book about Harry J. It's like that guy just doesn't have any of this equipment. This guy's got loads of equipment. He's just got this huge blind spot about what it means to be a standard singer or a, a vocalist, basically. You know, there's this whole job description that existed for a hundred years and she's in it and you might want to talk about that. But anyway, so right. it's I, I strongly recommend it. Uh, it is a smart book. I've got the expanded version. It was on my wish list. My brother bought it for me. So there's apparently some other essays by other people and a couple of added chapters that he stuck in because the 33 and a third series tends to be very thin. Right. You know, 100 pages. I'd, so I'd, I'd like I'd like to see this. I think it sounds interesting. Yeah. It is. Maybe I'll mail it to you or something. This is a rare book that I actually own in physical form. But I, I think it is very smart. And he's he's a good writer. You know, he he presents his material. He's got good tonal control. He, he he presents it smoothly. He gets fairly complicated without getting tangled up. And it's, it's just this weird thing that occurred to me like about two-thirds of the way through. It's like, dude, listen to Ella Fitzgerald. <laughs> Come back to me right. when you've listened to you know, just anybody, Peggy Lee, whoever you want. You know, it just, There's dozens of people that have done this at a very high level and then contextualize her in a new way. But, yeah, I strongly recommend it. And I, I whenever I guessed I would read a book about Celine Dion. And that concludes Jazz Bastard Podcast 197. As always, you can contact us at pat at jazzbastard.com or mike at jazzbastard.com. Or if you like, look me up on Facebook or drop me a line on All About Jazz. The podcast can be downloaded from www.jazzbastard.com, from Stitcher, from Mixcloud, from Apple Podcasts, and you can stream it at All About Jazz. Tune in next time as we interview keyboard player Danny Green and talk about his album with LP and the Vinyl, Heard and Seen, as well as some of his favorite recordings by Brad Meldow, Chick Corea, and Alexandra Andre. Until next time, take care. <laughs>